I've been asked to address the subject of the history and the theology of the Puritans, which is like trying to get your arms around the Atlantic Ocean. Um, it's more than we can take in, in in one session. It's more than we can take in in one conference. But I want to set before you really a, an overview of who the Puritans were, something of their history, their convictions, and their beliefs. And so I want you to climb Mount Everest with me. It can be argued that no generation ever assembled on the stage of human history has been more devoted to living for the glory of God than the Puritans of the 16th and 17th centuries. And during that golden era of 150 years, Puritanism wielded a dramatic effect upon England and ultimately far beyond. In its century and a half, the Puritans resisted a king, executed another king, founded England as a republic, established republics in New England, reshaped England's culture, wrote doctrinal confessions, composed catechisms, created massive commentaries on the Bible, penned theological tomes, formed a lasting body of prose and poetry, produced English translations of the Bible, dominated every pulpit that they entered, raised godly families, and became the spiritual pulse and moral conscience of the nation. The names of the Puritan divines read like a list of Hebrews 11, God's Hall of Fame. Spiritual giants walked the land, such luminaries as John Owen, John Bunyan, Jeremiah Burroughs, Stephen Charnock, Thomas Goodwin, William Gurnall, Matthew Henry, Thomas Manton, William Perkins, Samuel Rutherford, Richard Sibbs, Thomas Watson, and countless more. J.I. Packer has rightly called the Puritans the spiritual redwoods of the Christian forest. They were spiritual titans who rose higher and stood taller than others in their day or virtually any day. Charles Spurgeon extolled the Puritans when he said, let me have just one good solid Puritan volume and my soul can be fed upon that. No modern books give me so much meat. And J.C. Ryle remarked, we are scarcely worthy to sit at their feet and to carry their books. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, all that is good in evangelicalism finds its roots in Puritanism. The Puritans stood on the shoulders of the Reformers and brought to and sought to extend the Reformation to every aspect of church and life and government in England. They took the robust theology of the continental reformers and were resolved to apply it to every area of life and specifically to public worship. Broadly speaking, the Puritan spirit included nonconformists, those outside the national English church who embraced the same core beliefs with an equal fervor. It was 
an extraordinary movement. William Ames put it this way, Puritanism is a life force, a vision and compulsion which saw the beauty of a holy life and thrilled to the satisfaction of a God-centered life. So who were the Puritans? When did they live? What did they believe? What did they accomplish? I want to take this vast subject and divide it into six segments. Because for me, this is one of the most complicated eras of church history, if not the most complicated, because it shifts with the changing of monarchs and and the influence that is prevailing in the day. I want to separate it out into six marks, six stages. And the first is, I want to call it stage one, the seeds of Puritanism. The seeds of Puritanism And those seeds were initially sown by two pre-reformers, excuse me, two pre-Puritans, William Tyndale and John Knox. William Tyndale in the 1520s realized that all of England was under a, was shrouded in spiritual darkness. The people did not have access to the Word of God. Even the church did not know the Word of God. And so, William Tyndale set out on this course, if God spares my life, that he would cause a plowboy in the field to know more of Scripture than the Pope in Rome. He was denied permission by the king, Henry VIII, and the Bishop of London to translate the Bible into the English language. And so, Tyndale had to leave England and go to the continent for the next decade to live as a fugitive outlaw underground to defy the king of England to do that which was forbidden, which was to translate the Bible into the English language. Martin Lloyd-Jones remarked at his annual Puritan conference, Puritanism, I am prepared to assert, really first began to manifest itself in William Tyndale. As far back as 1524, Puritanism is a type of mind. It is an attitude. It is a spirit. And it is clear that the great characteristics of Puritanism began to show themselves in Tyndale. That was the first shot fired by Puritanism. As William Tyndale now produces an English Bible, and in 1526, it is smuggled into England, and now the seeds of what would sprout and become Puritanism are beginning to spread. In 1534, Henry VIII king of England, was denied papal annulment of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon. And so he pulls the church that is in England, that is a Roman Catholic church, he pulls it out of the Roman Catholic church and establishes the Church of England, the National Church of England. And Parliament declares him to be head of the church, just like the Pope was the head of the church. The king of England, the monarch, will now be the defender of the faith. He will now be the head of the church as they pass the act of supremacy. But despite this severance from Rome, nevertheless, the church of England remains Catholic in its doctrine and Catholic in its practice. The seeds of Puritanism were further sown by John Knox who was appointed royal chaplain 
by the Protestant king, Edward VI. And by his royal commission, Knox preached before the king in his court, Windsor Castle and Hampton Court and Westminster Abbey. In 1552, Knox challenged the prescribed public worship of the Church of England that had retained its Catholic influence, stating it had not gone far enough, it had not reformed enough, and Knox refused to kneel when he would take communion. He said it, re- it resembled idolatrous Catholicism, and this defiance forced an addition to the Book of Common Prayer, known as the Black Rubric. But Knox, as a pre-Puritan, is already challenging the system of the Church of England. In 1553, Mary I rose to the throne in England, and Knox was forced to flee to, to Europe, and he went to minister in Frankfurt, Germany. And in 1554, he pastored an English-speaking church that had fled from England And an enormous controversy arose over public worship. And part of the church wanted to have the Book of Common Prayer. Knox wanted to follow what was becoming the regulative principle that we will worship publicly according to what the Scripture says. There was such an uproar that Knox was forced to leave. He went to Geneva to be with Calvin. And there Knox pastored an English-speaking congregation in Geneva and did not follow the prescribed worship of the Church of England with this English-speaking congregation and instead followed what he believed was simply laid out in Scripture. And because of this, Lloyd-Jones explains, in Geneva, we have the first truly Puritan church among the English people. John Knox is the founder of English Puritanism. I maintain that one cannot understand the Puritan revolution that took place in England in the next century except in light of Knox's teaching. He was the first to challenge the English monarchy concerning the practice of public worship and open the door to what would later become the Puritan movement. For this bold stance, Scottish historian Thomas Carlyle called Knox, quote, the founder of Puritanism, close quote. And biographer Jasper Ridley agrees calling Knox one of the founders of English Puritanism. So this is the first stage. It's really pre-Puritan, but nevertheless the seeds are being sown into the soil of the Church of England And the Puritan movement will primarily take place within the Church of England to purify the worship of the Church of England. The second stage that I want to set before you is the roots of Puritanism. Those seeds began to germinate, and roots began to sprout and to emerge under what follows. And when Mary the first, Bloody Mary, dies in 1558. She is succeeded to the throne by her half-sister, Elizabeth I, who would reign for the next 44 years until 1603. And Mary I had been a staunch, strict Catholic who burned at the stake 
288 reformed-minded people in England. In fact, the first that she burned at the stake, I keep his picture inside my Bible. John Rogers, February the 4th, 1555, burned at the stake in Smithfield, London. Before Mary was Edward VI, and he was a strong Protestant. So as Elizabeth assumes the throne, there, there is much chaos, if you will. And so Elizabeth assumes a compromising position. Elizabeth tries to have Protestant theology with Catholic worship and mix the two together to keep everyone happy. And this left the Church of England only half reformed. And so in the 1560s, this compromise produced a strong reaction with many within the Church of England. We do not want a high church, Catholic, resembling worship service, and they came to be known as Puritans. They wanted to purify the Church of England, not just in its doctrine, but even in its, its worship publicly. And so this reform-minded group within the Church of England sought to rid the Church of England of its popish ceremonies and clerical vestments. And so the battle for the soul of the Church of England was on, and it was begun by the Puritans who believed that the English Reformation had not gone far enough, that the church was only half Reformed. And so the Puritans embodied the five solas of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, they believed that the Bible is the supreme authority in the church. They believed in sola gratia, sola fide, solas Christos. They believed salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that this now was the banner over the worship service, soli Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. The very centerpiece of the worship service, the Puritans believed, was the pulpit and the preaching of the Word of God as what they called the primary means of grace. There would be multiple means of grace through prayer and coming to the Lord's table to observe what it represents and fellowship and, and etc. But the primary means of grace was the pulpit and the preaching of the Word of God. And in 1592, William Perkins wrote, the art of prophesying in an attempt to purify the pulpits in the Church of England. And the Anglican ministers who were very, many of them very stuffy and virtually their nose in the air and relying on rhetorical techniques as they would give homilies. Perkins said, no, we desire a manner of preaching that is plain. And the Puritans began to be ridiculed. And Perkins responded by saying, it is a byword among us. It is a very plain sermon. And I say the plainer, the better. So the Puritans, under the influence of William Perkins and others, adopted a manner of pulpit ministry that was very straightforward from the Word of God, and it was the means by which the church would be 
edified and even brought to faith in Christ. Peter Lewis writes, the Puritan pulpit proved to be the place of the mightiest assault on the, wor- on the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so these seeds that had been sown by Tyndale and Knox began to, to sprout and to grow roots into the soil of the Church of England under the influence of men like William Perkins. This leads us to the third stage, which is the budding of Puritanism. The budding of Puritanism. In 1603, Elizabeth I died childless, ending the Tudor dynasty, and to the throne of England comes now James VI of Scotland, who becomes James I of England and Scotland and Ireland, as there is now a united kingdom with one monarch over the three territories. James I had been raised in Scotland. In fact, I've been where John Knox preached his coronation when he was only two years of age. He had been raised a Calvinist in Scotland, and he had pushed back against the the strict and strong teaching of sovereign grace. But as he came to the throne, Puritan hopes soared that could there be one who is sympathetic to the sovereignty of God on the throne of England and who would hold to Reformed doctrine And so they approached the king of England, James I, in 1604. They had a petition. It's known as the Millenary Petition. And it was signed by 1,000 ministers who identified as, as Puritan ministers seeking reforms in the public worship of the Church of England. James, King James stonewalled them and demanded that all clergy conform to the same liturgy in the Book of Common Prayer. And subsequently, 90 Puritan ministers were suspended from their pastoral office. To counter this Puritan movement, in 1604, King James I commissioned the translation of the authorized version of the Bible. It came to be known as the King James Version of the Bible. And one of the driving forces behind having now a King James Version is to have a Bible that will be put into the hands of the people that do not have the study notes in the Geneva Bible, which had become the Bible of choice in the English-speaking language, in the English-speaking world. And in those notes, under the influence of Calvin's preaching, it was stated that a true Christian owes greater allegiance to God in heaven than to the king on the earth. And so to counter that, there is produced the King James Version of the Bible, which became the most important book in England, in the English culture and a driving force in shaping the English-speaking world. Forty-seven scholars, all members of the Church of England, met at Oxford, Cambridge, and Westminster, and over a three-year period of time produced the King James Version. Interesting, in the New Testament, it is estimated that 85% of the King James New Testament is verbatim, basically, 
William Tyndale's translation of 1534. Forty-seven men could not improve upon the work of the one man, William Tyndale. And so, the King James Version of the Bible was greatly used by many on all theological persuasions, but it now is in the mix. And soon, in 1618, in a harbinger of things that would come, the King of England, James, imposes the worship of the Church of England upon the Church of Scotland. Ian Hamilton will be giving a message along these lines, in which he will basically summarize by saying the Scottish position was, stay out of Scotland, leave us alone. In 1618, the five articles of Perth were decreed, which imposed Catholic practices of worship on the Church of England which included kneeling during communion, private communion for the sick, infant baptism, not one Sabbath after birth, Episcopal confirmation, and the the observation of Christmas and Easter. This proved to be too much for many in the Church of Scotland, though it was reluctantly accepted by the General Assembly. But it was a preview of what would be coming in future years where the King of England would dictate to the Church of Scotland how it will worship. In the mix of all this, there were those in the Church of England, as well as outside the Church of England, who wanted religious freedom and sought another world. And in 1620, the pilgrims left England. They were separatists, meaning they had separated from the Church of England And they had gone to the Netherlands, and then from the Netherlands they sailed to Plymouth Rock and came to what would become our country in search of freedom of worship for their families, that they could worship God according to their own dictates and for it not to be decreed to them by the monarch. In 1625, James I died. And he is succeeded to the throne by his son, Charles I, who married a very devout Catholic woman, and the Puritans feared that this would only heighten the Catholic influence in worship in the Church of of England, and it was a well-founded fear. And then in 1628, Charles I appointed William Laud as Bishop of London, and he introduced Catholic forms of worship as well as Arminian theology into the drinking water of the Church of of England. And there began to be great conflict between the king and parliament. And Charles I dismisses parliament, which was becoming increasingly Presbyterian and increasingly Reformed, and there was bitter opposition that was taking place. This forced more Puritans now to begin to seek a land and a place where they could worship God publicly according to their own dictates. And in 1630, pilgrims began leaving England in search of a better land, and they came to Massachusetts. And over the next decade, 13,000 Puritans would board ships and flee to the new world in order to escape the tyranny of the monarch of England. 
1637, Charles I, somewhat becoming drunk with pride, attempted to impose high church Anglicanism and Catholic forms of worship upon the Presbyterian Church in Scotland, the Scottish Presbyterians, the Church of Scotland. And the king required that the Book of Common Prayer that was specially adapted for the church in Scotland, that would now govern the prayers, the worship service, the rites, the ceremonies in the Church of Scotland. And on July 23rd, 1637, the first time this Book of Common Prayer for the Church of Scotland was introduced to prescribe worship, a woman who sold her goods as a marketer in the streets, Jenny Geddes, raised up in the worship service and took a stool and threw it at the minister. (laughs) And she cried out, false thief, dare you say the mass in my ear? And it represented the spirit of those in the church of Scotland that we will not be dictated as to how we will worship God. And so in 1638, they signed the National Covenant, which opposed these proposed changes in worship. And and this covenant resisted bishops being put in an Episcopal form of government, bishops being placed over churches, and then the bishops under a higher uh, archbishop, and then he under a king. And Scotland said, we'll not have it, and we will not be using the Book of Common Prayer. And so there was a revolt that was raised against the king of England over how we will worship God. And the Scots who signed that covenant became known as Scottish Covenanters, who resisted Charles I and resulted in a devastating defeat for the king. And in 1542, this setback from the Scottish pushback caused Charles I to flee to England under political turmoil, which now leads to a very complicated era, era known as the Civil Wars. Civil Wars fought in England, if you can imagine this, over public worship. The king who believed he has the divine right of kings with his royalist cavaliers against the parliamentarians who were largely reformed, and a Puritan army under the command of a man named Oliver Cromwell. And the Puritan army gained the upper hand, leading to the increase of Puritan influence. And so, with Charles I now actually on the run, the stage is set for what I want to call the fourth stage, which is the flourishing of Puritanism. The seeds have produced roots and the roots budding, and now the flourishing of Puritanism, beginning in 1643, it would reach its zenith as the Westminster Assembly would meet to create reform, to reform the beliefs and worship of the Church of of England, and originally intended to revise the 59 articles of the 
Church of England, they instead produced four very important documents. And these documents were composed, were created by 121 ministers meeting in the Jerusalem chamber in Westminster Abbey, 10 members of the Lord of House of Lords, 20 of the House of Commons, and eight non-voting members from Scotland. And Richard Baxter would stated the divines, the Puritan divines, were men of eminent learning, godliness, ministerial abilities, and fidelity. The Christian world since the days of the apostles have never seen such an excellent gathering of divines. 1644, before they produced the Westminster Confession, before they produced the shorter catechism and the longer catechism, they first produced the directory for public worship because the tip of the spear of these issues in England that is resulting in civil war, is resulting in all kinds of of turmoil, is the public worship of the Church of England. And so they first produced the directory for public worship to replace the Book of Common Prayer. And the document established the regulative principle which centered upon the reading and preaching of the Word of God. It was approved by the Parliament of England, though never implemented, but it was adopted by the Parliament of Scotland. Then in 1647, Westminster Confession of Faith, stating strong Calvinistic beliefs in 33 chapters, was drafted and adopted, and it would become the most influential confession of faith in the English-speaking world, even to this day. The doctrinal affirmations of the Westminster Confession are the epitome of Reformed confessional theology. It is Bible-asserting, God-exalting, Trinity-defining, eternal decree-establishing, providence-teaching, original sin-affirming, covenant-teaching, Christ-magnifying, salvation-delineating, assurance-specifying, law-perpetuating, Christian liberty-establishing, church-governing, and judgment-stressing. The eminent theologian B.B. Warfield wrote concerning the Westminster Confession of Faith, it is the embodiment of the pure gospel of the grace of God. Warfield wrote, in these words, we possess the most complete, the most fully elaborated, the most carefully guarded, the most perfect, the most vital expression of doctrine that has ever been framed by the hand of man. And the revered John Murray refers to the confession as the mature fruit of 15 centuries of confessional formation. And my mentor, R.C. Sproul, states, the Westminster Confession is the most precise and accurate summary of biblical Christianity ever set forth in creedal form. So this is at the, the zenith, really, of the Puritan influence in creating this extraordinary document. And then Along with it came the shorter catechism in order to instruct children in the doctrinal truths of the church. And then in 1648, the larger catechism, which was intended for pulpit exposition. 
there would be other doctrinal statements that would come out at this time. There, there would be the, the Savoy Declaration, 1658, which was adapting the Westminster Confession to congregational churches. There would be the Baptist London Confessions of 1644, 1677, and 1689, the final version based upon much of the Westminster Confession and Savoy Declaration. And then, in 1649, the Puritan-led Parliament put the King of England on trial, and he was executed, beheaded. Matthew Henry's father, Philip Henry, was there as, as an observer. And Oliver Cromwell now will begin to step into the power vacuum and was made commander-in-chief of Parliament's army and led military campaigns against Ireland, which was very Catholic, and against Scotland, where there were still strands of Catholicism, and Oliver Cromwell defeated them, them both. Cromwell became the compelling force of Puritanism, militarily, politically, and even in many ways religiously. In 1651, he became chancellor of Oxford University, which was the towering university in England, and appointed to be dean of Christ Church and vice chancellor of Oxford, none other than John Owen, who ruled and served over Oxford for the next eight years. John Owen, who would be England's Calvin. And so there was this strong Puritan influence now exerted even over Oxford that was of a high Calvinistic influence. Cromwell was a nonconformist congregationalist, who sought a broader, more tolerant national church. He was not actually from within the Church of England. In 1653, he dissolved the Rump, Rump Parliament, and an interim parliament made him Lord Protectorate over England. And Cromwell sought to uphold the liberty of conscience and worship and to promote godliness in the land. He was actually offered the crown of England in 1657, but in consulting with his counselors, he refused it, and John Owen was one of those who told him to refuse the crown of England and to remain Lord Protectorate. He died in 1658, and his son Richard assumed the position of Lord Protectorate, but he did not have his father's swashbuckling leadership style and was unable to hold the nation together. So this leads now to the fifth stage of Puritanism, the uprooting of Puritanism. Those seeds and roots that had grown are now being ripped out of the soil. In 1660, Parliament voted to restore the monarchy of England. And Charles II, who was the son of Charles I, was called out of exile from Europe to come back now to be king of England. And Charles II initially 
indicated that there would be much tolerance in England in worship, but the tide soon turned, and the English Parliament voted to enact six laws in rapid-fire succession that were designed to rid the Church of England of the Puritans. The first act came in 1661, the Sedition Act, which made it a crime of high treason against England to call the king a heretic or a papist. No one could incite hatred against the king, and such a person committing these crimes would be disqualified from all public office, and this act also declared the Psalm League and Covenant to be null and void. In the very same year, 1661, another law was passed, the Corporation Act, which restricted public offices in England exclusively to those who were members of the Church of England and who received the Lord's Supper in the Church of England at least once a year. So you could not hold public office or a military position unless you were in the Church of England and took the Lord's Supper or communion once a year. It barred all nonconformists from holding civil or military office in England. It excluded anyone from graduating from Oxford or Cambridge who was not a loyal member of the Church of England, and it required taking an oath that you would not take up arms against the King of England. Further, you could not attempt to change the existing government or church polity in England. This, this was putting the Puritans in a straitjacket. But there was more. The next year, 1662, the law was passed known as the Act of Uniformity. They restored the use of the Book of Common Prayer and made it compulsory for all ministers within the Church of England to lead in public worship according to its dictates and for all lay people to follow it. It prescribes set forms of public prayers, rites, and ceremonies as set forth in the book of prayer. And every minister was stripped of his ordination and had to be reordained under this new regulation of uniformity. And when a large number of Puritans, 2,000 preachers refused to sign the act of uniformity, they were immediately removed from their pulpits. August the 24th, 1662, known as the Great Ejection, one-fifth of all the clergy in the Church of England was expelled from their pulpits. This was a devastating blow to Puritanism. Then, two years later, 1664, there was a fourth act known as the Conventicle Act, which stated, which prohibited religious assemblies of more than five people, not officially licensed by the, by the crown. This barred any public worship that was led by a Puritan minister. 
This led any gathering of people to worship or study the Bible of more than five people unless it had the approval and the license of the king of England. And it led to the persecution and imprisonment of many Puritan pastors, including John Bunyan and Richard Baxter. And then, the next year, 1665, Parliament was not finished yet, trying to slit the throat of Puritanism. They enacted the Five Mile Act, which prohibited expelled Puritan ministers to come within even five miles of their previous church. And then they added, you cannot come within five miles of a city. You cannot preach in homes. You cannot preach in fields. You cannot even be buried inside the city limits. And that is why when you go to London today and you go to Bunhill Fields where there are countless Puritans that are buried there, including John Owen and John Bunyan and Thomas Goodwin and many more. It's within the city now, but at the time, it was outside the city limits. And it was a sign of total repudiation of the Puritans, just like Jesus was crucified outside the city. And then there would be passed the second conventicle act in 1670 that imposed a fine on any person attending a religious assembly other than the Church of England, which is, again, under the headship of the monarch. This law was intended to hinder any underground Puritan movement, any person who allowed his house to be used as a meeting house for a religious assembly would be fined stiffly. So this is the the withering of, of, of Puritanism, and it was dealt a devastating blow straight from the monarch himself through his legions that surrounded him. This leads now to the final stage of Puritanism, the fading of Puritanism as the Puritan era begins to pass off the scene, not the Puritan principles and not the Puritan ideals. Those remain with us today, but the Puritan movement began to pass from the scene beginning with 1685. When Charles II died, he was succeeded to the throne of England by his brother, James, who became James II. He was the second surviving son of Charles I. And he was suspected, James II, of being pro-Catholic, just like his father, James I. And he was the last king of England who believed in the divine rights of kings. So James, being a politician, sought some kind of a compromising position, and there was passed the Declaration of Indulgence, and this this act allowed for some religious tolerance in public worship, but still required that 
every citizen must affirm the king's, quote, sovereign authority and absolute power, which all subjects are to obey without any reserve, close quote. As you can imagine, this was not well received, and it weakened the reign of James II. And this led the next year, 1688, to what is known as the Glorious Revolution. In 1688, the Puritans believed their only hope to resist a Catholic future of England was to summon the Protestant son-in-law of James II, William of Orange, who was in the Netherlands, who was married to the daughter of James II, to summon him to lead an invasion of the United Kingdom and to secure it from any possible Catholic reign. So William sailed across the North Sea with a large Dutch fleet and army, and he landed in southwest England and asserted, quote, the liberties of England and the Protestant religion I will maintain, close quote. And after this successful intrusion into England, he then sailed to Northern Ireland, to to Belfast, where he secured a great victory for the Puritan cause. And this invasion came to be known as the Bloodless Revolution or the Glorious Revolution. And under this force of takeover by William of Orange, James II fled from the throne of England as the last Roman Catholic monarch over the United Kingdom and over the Church of England. And his departure ended a century of intense political and civil strife. So that very next year, 1689, William and Mary both assume the throne of England. And they pass the Toleration Act, which allowed for freedom of worship for those outside the Church of England, for nonconformists who rejected popish doctrines of transubstantiation. They were allowed to obtain license for their their meeting places for public worship, and they were allowed to have their own preachers and their own teachers and to expound Reformed doctrine. And so this really brings to the end this massive 150-year-plus history of the Puritans that in so many ways rallies around the flagpole of the monarchy, depending upon whether it's a Protestant or a Catholic or a halfway house upon the throne. But at this time now, the Puritans were passing away into death. William Gurnall died 1679. Thomas Goodwin dies 1679. Stephen Charnock passes away 1680. Thomas Brooks, 1680. John Owen, 1683. John Bunyan, 1688. John Flavel, 1691. Richard Baxter, 1691. Matthew Mead, 1699. The tallest trees in the forest have been cut and have fallen to the grave. And so the zeal of Puritan, this Puritan movement, these leaders 
pass off the scene. And the zeal of reform-minded ministers largely becomes rechanneled into denominations, into Presbyterianism, into a Baptist movement, into a congregational movement, rather than everything seeking to purify and reform the national church of England. As I've already said, strictly speaking, the Puritan movement was within the Church of England, seeking to purify both doctrine and worship within the Church of England. It spilled out into other nonconformist churches as well. Though the Puritans passed off the scene, their writings live on. And they continue to disciple us today. And they continue to instruct us, though dead, yet they speak. And J.C. Ryle writes, The Puritans were not unlearned and ignorant men. The great majority of them were Oxford graduates and Cambridge graduates. Many of them fellows of colleges, and some of them heads or principals of the best colleges in those two universities. Ryle says, in knowledge of Hebrew and Greek and Latin, in power as preachers, expositors, writers, and critics. The Puritans in their day were second to none. Their works still speak for them on the shelves of the very best well-furnished theological libraries their commentaries, their expositions, their treaties on practical and experiential divinity are immeasurably superior to those of their adversaries in the 16th century. What a golden era the Puritan age was. But it was an age of spiritual warfare and fighting the good fight of faith. It was a day of contending for the faith, once and for all delivered to the saints. It was a day of pledging greater allegiance to the King of heaven than to the King of of England. It, it, It was a movement that at times caused them to have to stand alone for the truth. And stand alone for the truth they did, as needed. They were willing to break from the pack, to stand away from the majority, to stand with the majority, knowing that, as John Knox said, God plus one still makes a majority. They were willing to stand with God. And as they stood for the truth, they were willing to pay a high price. They were ready, they were willing to suffer loss of employment, they were willing to suffer imprisonment, they were willing to suffer even their own life, but they believed that it was the right investment of their life for the advancement of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they believed that their sacrifice for the truth would be the means of blessing that would come to their families 
would come to their grandchildren and future generations. No generation stood taller for God than the mighty Puritans. They were among the tallest trees in the forest of church history. And they stood strong in the violent storms of their days because their roots ran so deep in the Word of God. This spiritual depth caused them to hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ against even the forces of hell itself. And so in this hour in which we live of political overreach into the life of the church, we must look to the powerful example of the Puritans because they teach us how to hold fast to our convictions. And the banner over the entire Puritan age would simply be this, soli Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. We are here today to remember the Puritans, not because simply of who they were or what they did, but to remember who their God was and what God did in them and through them, how God fortified their faith and how God gave them great zeal for the glory of Christ and how they were willing to stand for the truth in a day when it was not popular. May God use their example to stir our own hearts and our own souls to be, to be deeply rooted in the truth of God's Word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for those who have gone before us, who have carried the torch of truth in their hour of history, and who have been so faithful to you through thick and thin, in good days and in bad days, in days of prosperity and days of adversity. Lord, use these noble men and women who were so valiant as champions for the gospel of Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would use even this conference to rally our own hearts and our minds to be fully devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, this is our prayer in the name of our Savior. Amen.